say confidence that makes sense on it. And hopefully that'll apply to this sermon. It'll make sense. At least that's the goal. We are coming towards the end of our series on First and Second Thessalonians. We'll have uh, one more sermon next week, and then we start Revelation. So that will be exciting. We are uh, gotten to Second Thessalonians chapter three. If you turn there in your Bibles, or you can read along in your insert, we'll be going through the first five verses today. Second Thessalonians three one through five. Please listen carefully as this is God's word. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have come to your word again this morning. We find we still need to learn a lot about what it means to do such simple things as praying for others and trusting you. We know we're susceptible to trusting ourselves first. So, Lord, once again, open our eyes and ears to truly hear and understand and apply this word to our lives. Use it to direct our hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. Do this for each of us this morning in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Amen. Could I have the slide, please? In an essay entitled, Do Christians Have a Worldview?, Dr. Graham Cole begins with these following lines as his opening paragraph. He took the blade, it was bright silver. He loved the way it glistened, it felt good in his hand. He cut deep into her chest again and again. He showed no emotion, no recognition of her her humanity. She lay motionless, her life gone. He made no attempt to cover the body. Later that night over a beer, he openly talked to another person in the bar about what he had done. The other person felt ill. Now, it sounds pretty bad, right? But just what does that paragraph mean? If on one hand, the words refer to a serial killer boasting about his latest savage attack, the sentences are pretty ghastly, and the guy in the bar should call the police. But if on the other hand, the words refer to the script of the CSI TV show, where a forensic pathologist talks about his autopsy of a particular interesting case. There is no crime here, though it may demonstrate a lack of professionalism. How you interpret those lines depends entirely on the context. You can take that off. Now, that's a dramatic way to illustrate the importance of context to understanding the Bible. And one of the rules uh, to understanding any passage in the Bible is to know the context first. What's going on here? What's the situation? Who are the people involved? Uh, Who's the writer of the text? Who are the readers of the text, both then and now? And if you can't answer any of those questions, 
you'll never really know what that particular text is trying to say. You have to know the setting. You have to know the situation. You have to know what's going on and why is he writing this stuff. And if you go back to when I started this series back in May, you may remember I spent some time explaining the situation that surrounded this new church in Thessalonica. I was trying to set the context for the books. And what I wrote then was this. The church in Thessalonica was founded by the Apostle Paul on his second missionary journey in Acts 17. And we know from this book that this was a church that was built on the preaching and teaching of sound doctrine and nurtured with a pastoral ministry of love and devotion. And although it was filled with people uh, who were less than perfect, nonetheless, it was a church where God's Spirit was at work. However, the brief mission in Thessalonica had been brought to a crushing end for Paul and for the apostles. There was a public riot there were legal charges against these missionaries that were so serious, they were persuaded to make this humiliating flight from the city in the middle of the night. Paul's critics took full advantage of his sudden disappearance. In order to undermine his authority in the gospel, they determined to discredit him. They launched a malicious smear campaign. And by studying his defense possible for us to reconstruct their slander. You know, he ran away, they sneered. Hasn't been seen or heard of since. Uh, obviously, he's insincere and he's impelled by false motives. He's just one more of those phony teachers who tramp up and down the coast of Greece. In a word, he's a fake. He's only in it for what he can get out of it in terms of sex, money, prestige, power, whatever. And when a little opposition arose... I don't know if I call public riot a little opposition, but, you know, when, when danger came, he took off and ran away. He really doesn't care about you Thessalonians. He abandoned you. He's much more concerned about his own skin than your welfare. And it seems likely that some of the Thessalonians were being sort of carried along by this flood of abuse. And the facts of Paul's abrupt departure, his failure to return, started to make sense, seemed to fit the accusations that were being made against him. And his critics uh, sounded sort of plausible. And Paul must have fain, found this attack uh, tremendously painful and very personal. And he was determined to reply to the charges that were being leveled against him, not out of anger or vanity, because the truth of the gospel and the future of the church were at stake. And that was the first problem the church had to deal with false teachers, and false accusations. And Paul answered those uh, very strongly in 1 Thessalonians. But as if that wasn't enough, they had another big problem to deal with. The ongoing battle they had with suffering and persecution. Paul was worried that the Thessalonians' suffering might lead them astray. Perhaps the best way to protect people uh, from being upset by tribulation is to remind them that it's a necessary part of our calling as Christians. He wants them to know that storms often come to believers to enable them to stand firm and not uh, to blow them away. And apparently, the Thessalonians were, had been taken aback. They were reeling under this relentless onslaught of persecution. 
And Paul reminded them when he was with them that he kept telling them to expect persecution. And the circumstances had turned out just as he said. And this reminder of his teaching would help to sort of calm them down. So that's the context of these verses, of all these chapters, of both these books, First and Second Thessalonians. And that's important because, quite honestly, these verses don't seem all that special until you put them into their proper context. I mean, what's Paul essentially saying here? You should pray, God is good, you can trust him, and you should depend on him more and more. Anybody disagree with that? Probably not. Sounds good. Let's eat. But the context of being surrounded by false teachers and suffering under persecution, these words take on a whole new meaning. And we discover just how important they really are. So let's dive into these words of the Apostle Paul written to a church facing hard times. And so we start with being told how to pray. How to pray, verses 1 and 2. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. You know, Paul can't close the letter without asking for their prayers for him. Here's an apostle expressing his need for their support. And how great to know that even Paul felt he needed to be prayed for so strongly. And the prayer he requests has nothing to do with his own personal well-being. It's uh, in order that his ministry for Christ might continue and expand. He says, uh, you know, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. Well, what happened among them? They turned to Christ from idols, and then they had to deal with being attacked both spiritually and physically through false teachers and persecution. I mean, Paul, I know you're an apostle and all, but are you sure you want what happened to us to happen somewhere else? But specifically, Paul asks for their prayers in order that the word of the Lord may speed ahead. The verb literally pictures the word of the Lord as running swiftly in a race. And Paul saw the gospel message running across the known world, finding converts in every place just as it had in Thessalonica. And the word is pictured as strong and, and as active. And we see a similar expression, a very vivid expression in Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now how encouraging it is for those of us who preach and teach the word of God that we're to think not merely of communicating words and ideas, but of releasing and transmitting this all-powerful, active, and dynamic word of the Lord into the lives of others. I'm convinced that what's desperately needed in our time is a growing conviction in the power, not of our words, but of the word of God. And this word running its course will be honored. What could be more gratifying and rewarding than to know because we've taught and proclaimed the word of God, it's been received with honor by some people. 
And the apostle prayed the word would not only spread rapidly, but it would be honored. And when the word of the Lord is honored, it means uh, that its hidden character is revealed as the word of life, word of righteousness, the word of truth. And as soon as that word is accepted by faith, it begins um, to adorn the life of the believer. And that's what the apostle wants us praying for. And that's what happened in uh, large parts of his ministry. One example was Antioch in Acts 13. Following his sermon there, it concluded with these words. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. And that's what Paul wants us praying for, that the word of the Lord might speed ahead. But then there's the second part to his prayer and to his request that has to do with the situation in which he's seeking some relief for both himself and for the church. He asks them to pray that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. And as he writes from Corinth, there must have been uh, some who were going to great lengths to oppose and to hinder the progress of the Word of God there. And the word translated wicked could also be translated as out of place. Because this, there's, there's several words for wicked, and this particular word uh, that's translated as wicked is usually used of things. This is the only place in the whole New Testament where it's used to describe people. And so here then are people who are out of place. They're out of line. And they're being actively wicked in opposition to the gospel. And the gospel is not always embraced with faith. Indeed, uh, it sometimes provokes, it frequently provokes violent hostility. And there's at least five times in Paul's letters um, where Paul asks for prayer. I've listed those there in your outline. In uh, Romans 15, he asks for prayer for continuing ministry uh, as well as for fellowship with them and, and the church in Rome. In 2 Corinthians 1, he sees their prayers as a part of his continuing ministry. In Ephesians 6, he seeks their prayers that he might speak boldly for Christ. And in Philippians 1, he affirms their prayers as a source of strength uh, for him in his witness and through his imprisonment in Rome. In Colossians 4, he solicits their prayers for an open door for his preaching. Those are just five examples. There's a number of others. Paul's constantly asking people for a prayer and then thanking them for prayer and affirming them that they're praying people. This is a big deal to Paul. Prayer is uh, one of those things that's near the top of his list. And he can't separate his ministry and his preaching from the prayers of his brothers and sisters in Christ. And I consider myself blessed to be a pastor who seeks and receives the continuing prayers of the people of this church. And in the same way, I think each of you should consider yourself blessed when you have the regular prayer support of caring friends. But knowing how to pray is not all that helpful if we don't know who to trust. We don't know who to trust, verse 3. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. 
So even as Paul solicits their prayers for his troubles with opposition, he recalls that the Christians in Thessalonica are also under attack. And so comes a word of encouragement and strong affirmation for them. And there appears to be a play on words uh, at the beginning of this sentence. Because the last uh, word of verse 2 was faith, pistis in Greek. The first word in verse 3 is pistos, which means faithful in the sense of trustworthy. It's just a change of one letter. So uh, Paul seems to be using that as a word play. And he's affirming the faithfulness of God, but he's setting it up as a contrast. A, a contrast between the unbelief of men and women, and particularly between the unfaithfulness of wicked and evil men and the faithfulness of God. And it's at the point of discouragement, you know, with people who oppose us or with people who just let us down, that the faithfulness of God needs to be remembered. We need to be reminded of it. When things aren't going well with people, and that happens to all of us, we need to be reminded of the faithfulness of God. And so by this contrast, Paul is expressing his conviction that the unfaithfulness of people cannot possibly overturn the faithfulness of God as shown in his covenant commitment to his people and to his word. Indeed, God's faithfulness to his word is a reoccurring theme throughout the Bible. It shows up again and again and again. It's in most of the books of the Bible. I've chosen a few uh, samples from the Old Testament. Uh, it's written of Samuel, the prophet, 1 Samuel 3. And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. Wouldn't that be great if God did that in your life? And he would let none of his words in your life fall to the ground. Jeremiah, when he, when he was called in Jeremiah 1, then the Lord said to me, you have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. And even though he's called Jeremiah to go out and preach, the Lord's saying, I am watching my word. I'm the one who's behind this. Similar promise to Isaiah, Isaiah 55. Great verse, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's word is powerful in and of itself. And when God sends it out, it works powerfully. He says it accomplishes that which I purpose. And so Paul's trying to share that assurance that God in his faithfulness is both the source of our strength, he will establish you, but he is also the one who guards and protects us against the evil one. And God is thus seen as strengthening and guarding us, not just from evil in principle, but from the one who is evil personified. The one that Paul warned us about back in chapter 2. And this is certainly consistent with Paul's view of evil. He expressed in Ephesians 6, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And that's true in this situation, in this context. They're engaged in spiritual warfare and they need spiritual weapons. And so Paul had to preach 
And the Thessalonians had to pray. And yet behind this preaching and this praying stood the faithful Lord himself who watches over his word and who confirms it by his spirit in the people's hearts so that it works in them effectively. Which is what Paul says about them all the way back in 1 Thessalonians 2. He said, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. And because they received and accepted the word of God, which they heard from Paul, then they knew what to obey. Then they knew what to obey, verse 4. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. Paul affirms his confidence in them in verse 4 in a way that's very characteristic of him. He expresses faith in the Lord that they will do the things that he's commanded them. And if Paul is rightly delivering the word of God to them, he had every right to put it to them as directly as he did. And in these two letters, he's given them commands. He's given them a lot of commands. And he's confident that they're doing what he's told them to do. And in 1 Thessalonians, we discovered uh, what some of those commands were that Paul is referring to here. here. Here's just a few of them. There's lots and lots. 1 Thessalonians 2.12, we exhorted each one of you, encouraged you, and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. Uh, 1 Thess 3.12, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you. 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, verse 3. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. And then 1 Thessalonians 5. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and who are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work, be at peace among yourselves. And Paul gives lots of other commands uh, to them in 1 Thessalonians 5. All of them to be carried out in the strength that God provides. And I'm always saddened. It always bothers me when there's those among us who know the clear teaching of Scripture, they know the commands of Scripture, and yet they just simply refuse to obey them. This past week, I heard about someone who claimed to be a Christian. I'm not going to tell you who it is. Um, and there was a certain sin in her life that she refused to give up. And no matter what was said, no matter the plea that was being made, her response was essentially, I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it. And the fact that we could open this book and say, but this is what God says about that. I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it. Really sorry it says that. Probably doesn't actually mean that. No, it does. You shouldn't be doing that. I mean, you're just basically ignoring the clear teaching of the Bible. You know, and... All these problems in the Thessalonian church. There's a lack of love. There's some immorality. There's a failure to encourage. There's a failure to respect. There's a failure to live peaceably uh, with others. And Paul gives them all these commands about that stuff. Well, those problems aren't unique to that church. We have all those same issues. 
And yet here Paul says, and I find this just amazing, he says, we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. I was kind of like, how's he get away with saying that? I'm not sure I could say that. I'd like to say that. But I think he could say that because he knew and they knew where to turn. Verse 5, where to turn. Paul concludes this passage, verse 5, May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. And again, we have one of those beautiful and priceless gems of simple wisdom. He prays that the Lord will direct their hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. And the language is unclear whether the love of God means his love for us or our love for him. Um, Paul's most common usage suggests God's love for us. Uh, I'm not sure it actually matters that much. On the deepest sense, those two always go together. It is God's love for us that generates our love for him. But what does the apostle mean when he says, uh, uses this phrase, the steadfastness of Christ? We don't talk like that a whole lot anymore. You know, that's, we just, I haven't heard anybody use steadfastness in a sentence lately. Maybe I'll start using that, make that my word of the week. And so I wanted to be sure about that word, so I looked it up. And it essentially means patient endurance. It's not a passive word, endurance, in order to survive, but it's an active and unswerving faithfulness in the midst of any and all adversity. And it's a faithfulness that takes that adversity and then uses it creatively and constructively. Remember the context of Thessalonians, they're under uh, political pressure, social pressure, religious pressure because of their faith in Christ. And Paul prays that the faithful Lord would strengthen and protect them from the evil one, that he would enable them to keep his commands, that they would rejoice in the love of God towards them and maintain the same kind of faithfulness that our Lord had during his own days of suffering. Peter had the same thing in mind when he wrote in 1 Peter 2, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And I think the writer of the Hebrews is referring to the same concept of the steadfastness of Christ in these words in Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin, which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Jesus himself is the definition of steadfastness. For he took the rejection and shame of the cross and used it for the redemption of mankind. Now, ultimately, all this is good to know. But we have to ask the question, what does this look like for us? 
What does this look like for us? What difference does it make? Does knowing uh, how to pray help? I mean, what difference does it make to pray that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored in your life? How should the word of the Lord speed ahead for you? Does that mean you should be reading and listening to it way more than you are now? Probably. And I know it's far easier to say we should be reading the Bible more than it is to actually take the time to do it. And Paul asked for prayer that it might speed ahead. What does that look like? What does it mean for you to have the word of the Lord speed ahead in your life? And if that really happened, how would your life look different? How would it change? If the scriptures were living and active in your life, if the word of the Lord was speeding ahead in your life, would that mean that you'd stop hating your boss? Would it mean you'd stop lying to your spouse? Would it mean you'd stop yelling at your kids? And for the kids, would that mean that you'd stop ignoring your parents? I don't know. It may be that. It may be all of that. But what I do know is if we really prayed like this, that the word of the Lord would speed ahead and be honored in my life, my life would start changing. And it starts with prayer. How about praying that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men? Got any wicked and evil men in your life? And I'm not talking about parents or teachers or even pastors for that matter. Because those people have been placed in authority over you by God. Yes, some of those people can be evil, but for most everyone here today, that's not the case. So where does evil come into your life? Does evil come into your life through the media, through the TV, through the computer, through the movies you watch and the things you read? That may not be true for you, but it is true for lots of people. Are you praying to be delivered from that evil? Perhaps evil comes into your life through the people uh, you associate with. Maybe it's that guy at work who can't speak without swearing. Uh, maybe it's that friend at school who's trying to take advantage of you. Maybe it's that woman in the neighborhood who constantly talks bad about everyone else. That may not be true for you, but it is true for lots of people. And are you praying to be delivered from that evil? Pray for the Word of God to be active in your life and pray against the evil that's trying to get into your life. And we can all be concerned about this. And as a matter of fact, we can all complain about this. But Paul's trying to get us all to be praying about this. And then we have to ask, does knowing what we're supposed to be doing have any real effect on us? I mean, the Bible is full of commands. The letters of the Apostle Paul are full of commands. These particular letters of First and Second Thessalonians are full of commands. We know what they are, and even if we don't know what they are, we know where to find them. They're not hidden. They're right here in the Bible in plain sight. And would Paul be able to say about us, and we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things we command. That's sort of a rubber of the, you know, rubber hits the road kind of remark. You know, it's easy to look at and say, you know, there are so many commands. You know, it's just kind of overwhelming, too much to do. I'm going to just briefly focus on just one verse. 1 Thessalonians 5.11, Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up. Well, how are you doing with that one? Who have you encouraged lately? Who have you built up? How have you done that? 
Of course, the opposite command always applies. If you're supposed to be encouraging one another, then you're not supposed to be discouraging one another. And if you're supposed to be building one another up, then you're not supposed to be tearing one another down. You know, it's always easier to focus on the positive command. It's a lot easier to talk about encouragement. Because, like, nobody's against encouragement. Everybody wants it. And they, they really want you to do it for them. Um, and so that's pretty easy. It's not so easy to deal with tearing one another down. Because, be honest, yes, there's some building up going on in the church, but in any church with this many people, there's also some tearing down. So how do we deal with that? Does just having me uh, mention it make the problem go away? I wish. Uh, no, I doubt it. I mean, we have to go back to the same thing Paul did when he talked about their obedience. If we're going to become people who constantly encourage one another and build one another up, then our hearts need to be directed to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. If we're going to be able to do any of this stuff, we have to know where to turn, and that means turning to and depending on the Lord. But does knowing where to turn grow us as Christians? No. Paul knows that because knowing that we need to turn to Christ and actually turning to Christ are two different things. I mean, there's a lot of things that I know I should do. And I don't always do them. And I prefer you not ask my family because they can tell you specifically. And I know there's... Uh, There's some of those things that I know I should do that are, that are pretty easy, they're pretty simple, and some are, are pretty hard. And it's just like a lot of commands in the Bible. And I tend to do those things that I know I can handle pretty well. I know there are certain tasks and certain skills that I'm good at, and so I do those. And then there's some things I avoid because I'm not so good at doing those things. And then there's some things I honestly don't know whether I can handle them or not. And those are the hardest ones of all. Because I know I can't do those things in my own strength. I know I can't do those things in my own wisdom. I know I can't do those things in my own ability. And so if those things are going to happen, it's got to be a God. And, you know, I, I read something this week that was in that sort of very simple, very profound category. It was simply this. If you can explain what's going on, then God's not in it. That really hit me. I was struck by that because there's not a lot going on that I can't explain. Not in my life and not in my church. And I get concerned because, you know, I want God to be involved in your life way more than I want him to be involved in my life. I mean, I want God to take you out of your comfort zone, but I'll stay in my comfort zone. Thank you very much. I want to look at your life and say, man, that's all of God. But I'd like my life to be explainable, understandable, controllable, and easy. That's not a good thing. So things are going to have to change. But you know, my life is kind of linked pretty closely with the church. You may have figured that out. Which means that if my life is going to change, and the church will be affected by that, 
then your life is going to change too. How great is that? Now, to be fair, you need to know that the elders have been discussing change a lot lately. Some of that's uh, because we're just at that season. The church has grown. The church has changed. And uh, so we've been talking about the next step for Potomac Hills and what that's going to look like and how much that's going to cost. I shared some of that last spring. If you missed it, the message is uh, on the website. It was actually a Sunday school class. It's called Notes for Future Direction. Um, You can go look that up. But we, as a session, as the elders, have decided that before we take any action, we want to come out and talk to you. And we want to hear where your life is too explainable and where your life has changed because you are depending on God, not on yourself. And we want to hear what, how, and where Potomac Hills is impacting your life and where it's not. And we want to start a campaign to build one another up and to multiply the ministry of Potomac Hills. But before we get too far down the road of plans and personnel and schedules and supplies and funding and future direction, we want to listen to you. We want to hear what Potomac Hills is doing that's working in your life. We want to hear what's not working in your life that Potomac Hills needs to be doing. So we're going to set up a series of small group meetings somewhere between six and ten meetings this fall covering the whole church. You only have to go to one, but we're going to set up a bunch so there's lots of options and and all the different uh, parts of uh, the county where people live uh, to try to make it a little bit more convenient. Uh, And we're going to try to listen to you and then to share some of what we're thinking as well. Because we think Potomac Hills is ready to do some new things and to move in some new directions. And we don't want it to be so easy to explain that God's not in it. And it'll take a lot of prayer. And it'll take a lot of trusting God. It'll take a lot of faithfulness to God's word. And it'll take a lot of directing our hearts to the love of Christ and the uh, the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. And we think there's a lot of exciting, scary, risky, uh, trusting days ahead of us as a church. And at the end of it, the goal is, is not so much uh, uh, the programs, the people, the different things. At the end, the goal is there's no explaining it. It's all of God and it's all of grace. So stay tuned. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and I'll close. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again, we thank you for this church in Thessalonica. Thank you they received and accepted the word of God, and so they prayed, and they loved, and they depended on you. May we do the same. Lord, we ask that you would do this within each one of us. Make us people who pray, and people who love, and people who trust you. Direct our hearts to the love of God and the steadfastness of Christ. We ask all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.